Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, the families that I've met have been through unimaginable pain. Emotions from a minister. Is it enough for Grenfell survivors? It, it will be up to members in their local constituencies to find someone else who will. Labour's uneasy peace could be about to end. Beginning to hear talk in some quarters that Brexit may not actually happen. It couldn't really be stopped, could it? All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett, and this week I am joined by Ned Simons. Hello, Ned. Hiya. Hello. And Mr. Paul War. Hello. No Kate, she's on holiday. No Rachel, we dispatched her to the local government association Associations well conference Indeed. in Birmingham. She is there right and now. And no Graham because speak. he is in New York where he belongs. Yeah. So Sorry about that last week, listeners. We didn't want Graham on the podcast. Muscled just, his way in. He just forced his way in. So let's crack on. Uh, another really busy week. Um, the three-week deadline, the government set itself to temporarily rehouse the survivors of the Grenfell tragedy passed this week, and many are still living in hotels. While the government has offered accommodation to 139 families, only nine have accepted. Among the reasons for turning down the offers are that some were in homes in other towers, other areas, or the homes just simply didn't have enough rooms. Other accommodation included curfew rules and other restrictions. Housing Minister Alok Sharma gave a statement in the Commons on Wednesday on the situation and was audibly choked up as he ended his address. Here's a clip. Mr Speaker, on my visit to the Westway, hearing the harrowing accounts of survivors has been the most humbling and moving experience of my life. The families that I've met have been through unimaginable pain. This is a tragedy that should never have happened. And we are determined to do all that we can to make sure something like this never happens again. Mr John Healy. It was also announced this week that a specialist task force was being sent into Kensington and Chelsea Council to take over the running of key services. That came just days after the council's leader, Nick Page-Brown, finally quit, just hours after sparking a fresh controversy by trying to stop the media from reporting on the first council meeting since the disaster. So lots to, to dig through there. Let's first of all talk about this, this rehousing situation because Theresa May said three weeks ago that we, within three weeks we will give everyone suitable temporary accommodation. And why they've, well, they can tick the box and we've offered it to everyone, Not only nine have accepted. I mean, that seems extraordinary. Well, it shows just how difficult it is to find accommodation in central London. <laughs> Let's be honest, you know, as anyone listening to this show and anyone who lives in London knows, it's bloody hard to find affordable accommodation in central London. And if, in a way, it would be amazing if Kensington could snip its fingers and suddenly find the right place. But having said all that, the Prime Minister made a commitment 
um, they, they was talking about an offer. The question is, how long is it going to take to find people really in places, the places that they want to live in? And I suspect that might take, not if not weeks and months to do. But surely this is where Jeremy Corbyn's right, isn't it? Because there are, there are, you said, you know, it's difficult to find flats and stuff. There's plenty of flats in Kensington and Chelsea, people aren't living at the moment. Mm. Plenty of flats, I imagine, on the market. Even if they were to spend a million pound a flat, that'd only be £140 million. Pound. That's a rounding error for the government. They could just go in and buy these properties, couldn't they? No? They could just say, right, we're going to buy these properties, we're going to buy them at the market value, you're not going to lose out, but we're going to rehouse people. Why do they do that? Yeah, and given that the kind of systemic failure that led or was the, this cladding that led to the fire, I don't think it's too much to ask the government to, to try and, as much as they can, mitigate it by looking after these people. You know, like you say, it, it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. Hmm. And these people deserve as much help as they can get. It just seems, if you're offering places to people which haven't got enough bedrooms, which have rules like you've got to be in by 10 o'clock every night, hmm. you have to let them know if you're staying somewhere else. It's in another tower. I mean, this is just another... Ma- yeah. This is just another completely misunderstanding of what life <laughs> what life is like for these people and what they want, isn't it? This just shows the government's yeah, out of touch. Yeah, it, it does show the government's out of touch. I think that's why Labour has gone after this issue so much. I think one indication of how serious they take it is that in this Labour reshuffle, they made Chris Williamson, who's sort of the most kind of Corbynista, very close ally of Jeremy Corbyn, they made him shallow fire services minister on perhaps the biggest issue of the day, someone who's very close to the leadership, who did the job before, before, when he, before he left Parliament, he had that job as Shadow Fire Service Minister, so he knows what he's talking about in terms of the industry and, and what goes on. So I think it shows, like you say, how much the Tories look out of touch and how much Labour are trying to be the opposite. What was interesting, though, about that clip you just played from Alex Sharma was that, you know, he did react in a very human way to what he's been told by local residents. And I've been told that it's not just him, it's Sajid Javid and the whole of the ministerial team and the officials have all been moved by what, what they've seen. And I think it was significant that actually you had a minister, you know, not quite breaking down, but nearly, uh, and bringing home that actually for all the political rowing that's going on, this is a massive tragedy. And, you know, as we saw this week, it was described by the coroner who'd visited the scene as apocalyptic inside that building. And that's the thing to keep remembering. Um, And I suspect that more than a few, it might have just happened by accident, but by chance that, you know, the minister wipes away a tear. But that actually counts for a lot, I think. And if only Theresa May, in a way, had reacted in such a human way, then I think the dynamics of this might have changed a bit. But isn't that the kind of the, not the point, but do you think it matters that much? I mean, how many of these people that have lost family members, lost their homes, really will think that the minister wiping away a tear really does matter? I don't know how, I don't know now whether that really will have much no, I don't think it people. would now, uh, but I think it just, my point was, it's about how this whole debate has been framed. If it, if that's the, how it started, from the government's point of view, a human reaction to it, and then we're going to sort things out, that would have been interesting. But that's why the the whole point about the task force is, you know, which we, we revealed on, on Wednesday morning, is important, because this task force is going to Kensington Chelsea Council. A lot of the residents are still not going to be happy with that, because they want a complete overhaul of the council. Um, but Sajid Javid decided that there were few key areas where he needed to hand over control to someone else, and there were housing, regeneration, community engagement, really importantly, and governance. They're all going to be run by someone else for the foreseeable future. Now, that's a massive admission that actually 
the poorest in Kensington have been failed for years. You wouldn't need to change your community engagement or your housing or your regeneration functions and the offices have run them if you'd actually run them properly. So you're seeing... But if this was a Labour council, I'm sorry, but if this was, if this was a Labour council, they would, have been a, they would have taken that into special measures. You know, as soon as you like, they would have taken into special measures. Okay? But that's the, that's the point. It's really interesting that you, you've got a council here which the, what the reaction of government shows just how divided that community is and how divisive um, the, the councillors run things. In other words, Sajid Javid thinks they're brilliant at running the finances, they're brilliant at running um, emptying the bins. All these things that actually the middle class, upper middle class residents of Kensington love about living in that borough, keeping council taxes low, uh, everything kind of working for them. That f- fine, no wonder Kensington Chelsea is rated second in the country for lots of those things. But it's been absolutely dire on things like housing, regeneration, yeah. community engagement. And it shows the government's response just shows how divisive things are in Kensington. I think that's well, really I, interesting. Uh, yeah, completely right. But I just I just feel like, you know, they're sending back checks for hundred pounds to people saying because, you know, we've run the finances so well. Well you haven't because you haven't provided yeah. Fundamental yeah. needs people. So actually, I would I would look at it and say you haven't run your accounts very well. You haven't run your finances very well at all. Okay. It's like it's, you know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. And I just and I just think that, like I said, if they'd been a Labour council, they would have really come down like a ton of bricks. The fact that Brent Council, which we also revealed, sent in a hun- has sent in 130 of its own staff and officials and other councils to provide support. That is not a council which is being run well, is it? Yeah, I think it's interesting what you point out, Paul, the fact that maybe some services are being run well and some aren't, but it shows kind of a divided country that if the government views it like that, if they view that um, well, some bits for the rich work, bits for the poor people don't, is if they're different, if you, they have to work together Absolutely. because they don't work for each other. That it's well, it shows how the measuring uh, needs to change. Maybe the measurement of what local government yeah. does needs to change to basically... Uh, reflect the fact that you can't just get away with dealing with the richest in your And the idea that things aren't all connected, the idea that housing isn't connected to the things that rich people like, because, you know, if you live there, you live together. It seems weird. Exactly. I just think it's... I think there's a lot... Obviously, there's going to be a lot more to go on this, and I just feel like there's going to be a reckoning about local government here. We might get it today at the the LGA meeting. There's going to be something which is going to come out of this to really look at how we measure the success of councils. Is it just you keep your council tax low and you send people money back? But if you're not providing the services, then surely that is not a good a good thing. Right, let's move on now. Um, let's move on to Labour. Oh, Labour. Jeremy Corbyn uh, this week uh, could back radical plans to make it easier for party members to deselect sitting Labour MPs in what appears to be a move to entrench his authority after the general election. Leader is now open to changing the party's rules to... Uh, democratise how it chooses who it represents at Westminster. This, uh, this tougher stance is already sort of being seen as momentum took control of yet another local Labour Party and they warned sitting MP Luciana Berger, Luciana Berger sorry, that she needs to get on board quite quickly after a previous criticism of the leader. Uh, HuffPost has learned, Paul's learned, that Corbyn has also appointed loyal left-wingers in key posts. Uh, covering everything from union liaison to campaigning. Here is Chris Williamson, who, as we've said earlier on, is a, an absolute Corbyn loyalist, setting out what needs to change from his point of view for those MPs who aren't quite on board. MPs need to reflect the, you know, the political programme that is overwhelmingly supported by Labour members and Labour supporters. And if people aren't prepared to do that, then it, it will be up to members in their local constituencies to find someone else who will. So, surely, local members get involved in a local party should have an absolute say over who represents them. What? This is a fuss about nothing, isn't it? Well, I think... <laughs> right. Yeah, go on. Just, well, the well, first well, thing I want to say is that it seems 
I understand why it's happening, but it's bizarre. You've just done this really well in this election. You haven't won it, but you look like you've won it in terms of winning the campaign. The government's kind of in chaos. Why start having this conversation again now? Because why didn't they win it? They didn't win it there because these MPs didn't sign up to the Corbyn agenda, right? If these MPs, these moderate MPs, have fully got behind Corbyn and Jeremy being number 10 now, that's that's the logic for is that right? You nearly burst out laughing. Oh, no, not that. at all. I'm not having it. I'm not having it. I'm on board. Yeah, no. yeah. If only there were a camera in this podcast. <laughs> um, well, this goes back to a bigger picture, which is the battle for the soul of the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn, quite rightly... Uh, from his point of view, he's won two landslide leadership elections. He thinks that, you know, he's he's got every right now to run the Labour Party as he, he sees fit because he's not just about him, it's about all those mass members and what they want. And just as Blair reshaped the Labour Party in his image, then that's exactly what Corbyn's doing. And Blair, don't, 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 Blair never deselected No, but Cl- Blair was cleverer. He got lots of people parachuted into seats, lots of special advisors, people who were on his sort of side of the party. Um, now, I'm not saying there's equivalence, but uh, what I'm saying is that the Corbyn supporters think that that means that it's happened in the past for the so-called right. What's wrong with doing it for the left? And there's a, a this big battle has been going on even before the general election. At the beginning of this year, Labour First, who are the sort of centrist progress types, um, have, have been battling in local CLPs to try and win nominations for this year's party conference. Um, now, that's been going on. It, it, it's a long process. It it's sort of continues this summer. But since the general election, what's different is that there was previously uh, a sort of roughly equal balance between momentum and Labour first. Since the general election, momentum is sweeping the board and lots and lots of AGMs. That might make a big difference in terms of the delegates that are sent by parties to conference. And the reason that matters is, don't forget, this isn't just about uh, Brighton Conference this year. This is about next year's conference, 2018, which I suspect is where the real story is going to be. It's not going to be this year. This year will be a kind of a celebration um, there's not th- the way the Labour Party works. It goes from year to year. So the people that will be elected as delegates this year will actually make a difference next year. And the same goes for a thing called Conference Arrangements Committee. This year, the Conference Arrangements Committee, which sort out which what's debated and what isn't, which rule changes debated, um, has Gloria De Piero on there, Michael Cashman, both of whom, ironically, were elected to that body. But the day that Corbyn won his second landslide, under the radar, the right was delighted because it managed to secure a conference for this year. And this is what's happening for next year. In other words, if, as may well happen, Conference Arrangements Committee shifts left, then you're going to get things like deselection, rule changes, all discussed. But also, will you get Brexit discussed? Because Labour managed to... Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, a Tory MP said to me, the real story of the general election, of course, is Labour's confusion on Brexit. I said, no, it's not, <laughs> is it? The real story of the general election is you lot using, nice, using your yeah, majority. Nice try. And they were absolutely insistent. And then after the um, Chicken Women's Amendment vote, they text me, told you so. And I was like, well, I think, OK. I still don't think that was the real story of the election, but it's, it's a big story, <laughs> it's right? It's a story. So we see, we see now this, this amendment last week that Chicken Women put down about basically trying to keep us in the single market. And it prompted um, sackings from the front bench, which I thought was really... I thought it was bizarre in two reasons. Number one, what a stupid thing for the front bench people. People in the shadow housing team, for example, who've got quite a big job at the moment, are not following a three-line whip on, a, on an amendment that's not going to get passed. So you, you're, you're baiting Corbyn to sack you, basically. It's very odd, because Andy Slaughter, who's well-respected on the yeah. in that shadow housing brief, particularly given Grenfell, decided that this was such this a big is the issue. Hill to die on. I thought it was really it, odd. It's very strange. Um, and Corbyn was surely right to, three line, to put in a three-line whip on this, wasn't he? 
Well, Surely the villain in all this is actually Chukramuna for putting down an amendment which he knew would cause this. And it's also, yeah, and it's also interesting that one of the people he, who came back into the shadow front bench in the reshuffle was someone who quit because Corbyn ordered them to vote to trigger Article 50. So in the same week... Rachel Maskell. Yeah, right? Rachel Maskell. So he, he sacked three people for voting ag- against him and then at the same time brought someone back who quit before. But she, she obeyed the whip this time, yeah, you see, which yeah, shows that exactly. it is about discipline. And you can see from the whip's point of view, and Nick Brown, it's not just Jeremy Corbyn that insists on this discipline, it's Nick Brown, the chief whip. You know, in a hung parliament, discipline is really, really important. You can't have people going off and voting the, the way they want to. I still think the Tories missed a trick on this, though, because if I was the Tories, I would have made sure after that amendment vote that I had all the most sort of toxic, if you like, right-wingers, you know, your John Redwoods, your Philip Davises, up on TV going, thank you, Jeremy, for coming to our support on this. Really good we got you on side, Jeremy. Just to really highlight the fact <laughs> that he is back in the, con- yeah. the, the government policy on Brexit. I think with, with well, Corbyn... I'm surprised they missed that. It just seems he's so bored by it. The thing about Corbyn like, and Brexit oh, is Brexit. just that he just... He almost only engages with the topic when he really has to. <laughs> you know, it's only like, oh, God, I really have to talk about Brexit, don't I? Like, I'd really rather talk about... Yeah, other things which are important, healthcare, education, all the things he likes to go to rallies about and speak about in Parliament. But it's just every time Brexit comes up, it's like, oh, really? But yeah, there is one area in which actually, the, talking of Brexit, the chief Brexiteer, Ian Duncan Smith, Corbyn today is going to be visiting where in the country? Chingford. Why would the Labour leader be holding an event in Chingford? I'll tell you why. Because Owen Jones and a lot of people in the Labour Party want this decapitation strategy against people like Boris and IDS. And as we revealed the other week, under the boundary changes, IDS on paper loses seat to Labour. They may not happen, but what's certainly happening is there's a big push because there's a tight majority now. Labour thinks one more heave, even if the boundaries don't change much, one more heave, you get get the scalp of IDS. Now that's just shows you the way Corbyn is thinking. Corbyn might be bored about Brexit, but he's not bored on tuition fees. A report from the Institute of Fiscal Studies this week revealed that students from the poorest backgrounds are leaving university with the most debt thanks to the Tories' decision to scrap maintenance grants. Uh, graduates, poor students will graduate owing more than £57,000 to the government in tuition fees and loans, while even those from modest and well-off backgrounds will have debts of £42,000. Five hundred. Uh, the research claims that the tuition fee change in 2012, remember the ones with all the protests and the Lib Dems, actually made the poorest graduates better off to the tune of about £1,500. But George Osborne's decision, decision to replace the maintenance grant with a loan has wiped away that benefit and most students will now be paying off the debt into their 50s. We are joined now by Jasmine Gray, who is our Young Voices editor. Is that the right title? Well, reporter. That was reporter. I've just promoted you. Promote me. That's so we are. Fine it's with done. That. Um, <laughs> official now. Thank you very much. So, um, talk us through this, because this report basically sounded to say that seemed to say that we're all be paying our t- students rather we paying their tuition fees off until their fifties, yeah. but a lot of them won't pay all off anyway because it's just never going to happen. No, basically, I think what the IFS report was saying is that the changes mean that especially poor students are leaving universities with these massive amounts of debt. So, like you're saying, fifty-seven thousand pounds, but that realistically they're never going to be able to pay it all off. Um, and also, I think you were saying before about they're going to leave with more debt than Richard graduates. Um, but the government have also freezed the repayment threshold at £21,000 since 2012. So even though then they might not pay it all off, they are actually paying 30% more than they were in 2012. So it's kind of like a double hit for poor students. And they also, they, one of the changes they did was they, they changed the interest rates on loans, didn't they? So yeah. whereas before it was just tied to inflation, now it's inflation plus 3% while yeah. you're studying. Yeah, so you can leave university um, with 
almost six grand worth of interest on top of your loan. Just wow. um, but I think in that respect, it's going to hit the highest earning graduates the worst because they're kind of, what well, if you earn more than £41,000 a year, you're paying 6.1% interest, which is obviously massive compared mm. to kind of high street loans. Um, yeah, so I think over the course of, well, into their 50s, the highest earning graduates are going to end up paying around £93,000 back on their student loans but it just seems like this is a system that fails everyone because it seems like the taxpayers don't get the money back they put in because a lot of people are never going to pay their loans off graduates are paying basically a graduate tax for 30 years why not just call it a graduate tax yeah. so Jamie Corbyn's policy is obviously to completely wipe wipe out tuition fees completely get rid of all of this did the IFS say anything like that did they think that would be a good idea um so it's kind of interesting actually they're saying that if that was to take place, it'd be the highest earning graduates that actually benefit the most because they're the ones paying the most back. So it's kind of, it seems like poor students are kind of losing out on both ends because a thing the Tory government says over and over again is more poor students going to university than they did pre the £9,000 tuition fees. But it's like, well, is that because of you or is that because kind of society has changed and like that's what schools expect the students to go on to do? Yeah, which is surely progress in it in a way. Mm. But, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Labour's policy was just how expensive it was. Scrapping tuition fees costs a total of £9 billion, But on, in their manifesto, they added another £2 billion, which to make it £11 billion, And that £2 billion was all about maintenance grants, restoring maintenance grants. And some people in the Labour Party think that actually that's the big thing that comes out of this IFS mm. report. It's, you know, Osborne's ridiculous decision to actually make poor people pay maintenance grants for the first time instead of inst get rid of maintenance grants and replace them with loans adding all this massive amount of debt on top of debt they're already paying for tuition fees the great progressive uh, george osborne that goes on about and like, and, oh, and that's God. what's really interesting which is that actually in another universe labor could have had uh, a policy where it kept tuition fees for the better off scrap them for for the low earners um and and increase that threshold that jasmine was talking about so instead of 21 grand it should have gone up with inflation or more before you actually start repaying your loan <clears throat> but crucially given a lot more in terms of maintenance grant and maybe even not just the poorest you could have a maintenance grant for middle class students as well rather than the at the present where no one gets anything and that's why so many people think that actually labor would have been better off putting more money into early years education which is could make a much more different more of a difference getting working class kids into university and ned phil wilson who is the mp for sedgefield player's old seat uh, wrote quite an interesting piece for the fabian society this week in which he said that Actually, the whole Twitter feast thing is just a middle-class problem and we're offering middle-class solutions. And it actually, if you look at the votes in the general election, we lost a lot of working-class support because we were talking about middle-class things. I mean, was he right to say that or is he, is he, is he wrong? Yeah, I mean, because you had there's a report out, you had a few other MPs as well, um, I think Gloria Piero as well and a couple of others saying you, we need to focus on the working-class vote. And whilst we, Labour did better than expected the election, it's still a bit sort of very middle-class Corbynista. So I think they do need to look at that. They do need to worry about what's happening in the north of England with work, working class but then they can't rest on their laurels. But you also said in that piece as well, he said working, uh, he said working class families want to have middle class children, right? But then he, and he said, well, this is a, an, an offer to the middle classes. So surely people from the working class then 
do like it because they think it's going to benefit their children. So isn't that where it does hang together? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm not him. So <laughs> And the big problem, of course, is that now Labour has made that promise of abolishing tuition fees. I think it's, it's almost a bit like a reverse Nick Clegg. There's no way that Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn's going to unpick that promise. He's going to stick to it until he tries and fails again. And Jasmine, what sort of sense do you pick up when you talk to student unions and that kind of thing? Do you think they are going to hold Jeremy Corbyn's feet to the fire on this forever? Massively. Like, I think that was a that seemed to be a big turning point in the election as far as young people go. Like, I think obviously more young people do tend to lean left, but I think that's a massive thing that people come back to again and again. And if you're 18 and you're voting for the first time and someone says, actually, you don't have to pay anything for university, like, why wouldn't you hold someone to account for that? You're not going to easily forget that amount of money, as we've just spoken about how much it is. Excellent. I'm not going to let you go, Jasmine, because I uh, want you to take part in this week's quiz. Yes. Oh, no. The quiz. <laughs> this week... As, as, no, 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 that, no, that no, 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 no
Yeah, I'm with Ned Eldorado. I'll, for the sake of being different, I'll go El Parlamento. And you'd be right to, Plaid Cymru. And the final one is Jesse Birdsall. Oh, that rings a bell. I've heard that name. But in what context, Paul? Your love <laughs> of soaps? Or your love <laughs> yeah, well, of exactly. Politics? Is it my love of soaps? I have not Birdsall. heard that. I think that's a famous actress, so I'm going to say El Dorado. Famous actress? You're half right. <laughs> He's cool. a famous actor. Actor. Uh, <laughs> he is an actor. He played Marcus Tandy in the show. Uh, and he's now in Hollyoaks. There we get. I knew there was. So there we are. Noise. All right. Did you enjoy it? That was, that that was, was this week's no, quiz. Eldorado. That was or, or that was the worst <laughs> one you've ever done. Oh, I think I'm, like, I'm with I, Ned, actually. I think you've, you've plumbed the depths. Right. That, just, that I'm going to list some names. You've ever but, but, done. But, 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 and then, listeners, don't worry, because I've got something else for you. I've got another treat for you, Ned, okay? Another treat for you, Ned. So this week, I interviewed the new Tory MP, Bim Offalami, okay? And I asked him, and this is not a setup, who his favourite politician was from another party. You ready for this? Now, Rui Jenkins is obviously quite an interesting guy. Um, I'd have loved to have met him. Oh, God. Like, you've, that is, you've set that up. That's no, not... he genuinely loves Roy, Roy Jenkins. Jenkins. He, he said you Roy don't... Jenkins. He said, I just read this book on Roy Jenkins, and I love him. So there we are, oh, man. Like, you just every week, Roy Jenkins. Roy Jenkins. Anyway, like, okay, no. Jasmine, thank you much for coming in. We'll let you go now. Thanks for having Cheers me. Cheers for coming. <laughs> Over on Planet Brexit, uh, BBC's Newsnight's political editor, Nick Watt, caused a bit of a... Well, he sort of caused people to sort of sit up last night when he made this, this comment. Let's have a listen. I am beginning to hear talk in some quarters that Brexit may not actually happen. I spoke to one Leave supporter who now fears that a combination of a stalling economy and investor fear over a possible Corbyn premiership could create a storm that would stall Brexit. I spoke to another person who's familiar with the Brexit process who said to me they think there is a strong chance that it may not actually happen. But I did speak to one senior Brexiteer who is absolutely confident that Brexit will happen if only for one very simple reason. Labour divisions mean that the legislation paving the way for Brexit will get through Parliament. So according to Nick Watt, Brexit might not be happening. Do we believe that? I don't no, believe I, that. I, I kind of think that that's like a little bit overcooking it. Yeah, I don't believe that. I either. mean, I spoke to someone in the Brexit department this week, and they was they said like, "Look, we're really we're doing loads of contingency work for No Deal, but that's just contingency. We really want to get a deal. We're really pushing for it." And it sounds like the language had changed that they really wanted to get a deal, where they weren't talking about the No Deal aspect as much. But the idea that yeah, Brexit's not going to happen. Not be people that suddenly wish it wasn't happening that before, yeah. but I don't think it's something it's off and and it's, it's all off people, like, thing is, it, people familiar with the Brexit yeah. that sounded to me like someone in Brussels rather than someone in London so if it's perfectly understandable if people in Brussels are now thinking ooh looking from our point of view this is going to be a car crash so it's not going to happen that sort of thing Brussels thinking you can yeah. imagine that but I can't imagine a civil servant or even a politician this side of the channel who's involved in this process thinking it's not going to happen I, I, mean, I can but, imagine people saying that I just think they'd be wrong so I, you know, so right, I can't yeah. imagine um, people. Yeah, I'm not saying you're not saying you made it up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're not no, clearly, clearly not. Um, we're not calling you a liar. No, no, no. We're just calling you thick. No, we're not <laughs> even doing that. We're not even doing that, are we, Paul? We like New World, don't we? Certainly do. We like New World. But it did bring into sharp relief the whole idea of you know 
will it happen? How will it happen? When will it happen? And that's why Michel Barnier today, um, the EU's ne Brexit negotiator, came up with this speech that actually will upset quite a few Eurosceptics because he's actually said something which many Remainers have long argued, which is there is no such thing as frictionless trade. Um, he basically said, look, if you're going to leave the customs union, we're going to have to have checks on your goods. Simple as that. We're going to have to have rigorous checks on your goods. Now, that does conjure up the spectre of long mm. tailbacks at Dover, lots of lorries, lots of complaints from everybody like, oh, my God, what have we done? Why have we left this customs union? And, you know, maybe it's part of his big negotiate ploy. You know, both sides are going to, you know, be playing harem scarum a bit. But still, it will worry quite a lot of people in business. It just seems to me that saying that is like blindingly obvious, right? In the same way that you can't be part of the single market and not have the four freedoms is also blindingly obvious, which Brexiteers always say to Remainers, look, we can't do it. It seems to me this is just another blindingly obvious statement. Excuse me, when everyone says something obvious, everyone goes, oh, it's like... Yeah. It's just, this is... But DD, don't forget, in Northern Ireland, for example, has this idea that somehow technological oh. change can make it frictionless and somehow you can you can have something on a lorry that would mean it wouldn't stop yeah. and the border would open. I don't know how that was going to happen. Maybe it will happen. Um, but All I would say to David Davis is go on the Dart go on the Dartford Tunnel or the Dartford Bridge on a Friday night, right? Right. And look at the queues for that, right? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. they've got the Dart Tag, haven't they, Ned? I'm not saying you should but just look at that we can't even get that we can't even get how often do you go on the Dartford the tunnel like, not for a while but I used to go all the time right and, and you can't even get people across the bridge that they're being queued all the way back to Blooming Lakeside or whatever. <laughs> but that's why, you know, it comes back to this whole point. Do you want to actually be slightly poorer, slightly worse off for however long, a temporary period, as long as you've got control? And people that like Steve Baker said yeah. this week, made absolutely clear, look, there'd be blood in the water if anyone mentions this thing like the European Economic Area, if we join on Norway's terms. In other words, you get access to the single market, but you don't have any say over the rules. In other words, Brussels takes back control. Now, a lot of the Brexiteers say, well, actually, yeah, I agree with Steve Baker. You know, the most important thing is that, you know, we're not going to be involved in sort of Norway-style solution. But curiously, the Daily Express reports today, and a really nice scoop, that David Cameron's been ringing Tory MPs saying, well, it's back the Norway model. So, I think... Of course he has. Of course he has. The thing that annoys me most in the Brexit debate is when Brexiteers get annoyed because the European Union isn't doing exactly what they <laughs> yeah. wanted to happen, yeah. as if... It was just going to be, oh, yeah, everything's fine. And they always seem shocked that the especially, EU has its own opinion. It's necessarily. For years, the whole point has been the EU doesn't do what we yeah, want it to do. Exactly. And now they're going, EU's not doing what we want. Yeah. I think you're just showing the liberal metropolitan elites bias against, you know, Brexit, basically. Well, that's what Liam Fox right said now, today. That, Liam Fox, isn't he, isn't he right? He said some, some media want Britain to fail. Talking about you. Yeah. I'd, I'd be better, be better. Just be not patriotic enough. And also, you know, I'll probably have to pay less than my student loan off before the wages go down, wouldn't I? So... Are you exactly. young enough to have a student? All right, you went to university. Yes, I went to university. Yeah, two key things. All right, He's all right, all right, all right. Enough of this now. We're getting silly. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and we will see you next week. Cheers. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers, and if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.